0: Emma and Shannon and
1: welcome back to our podcast she's an engineer why don't you tell them a little bit about today's episode
0: so in today's episode we're highlighting four different women in stem fields maybe some you have heard of or maybe not and just talking about their life and how they made an impact in the stem field the first person we're going to be talking about today is Emily Roebling And I originally heard about her when I was studying the Brooklyn Bridge back during my freshman year at Pitt. We did a semester-long project, our spring semester of our freshman year, and I did mine about the engineering technologies and landmark status of the Brooklyn Bridge. So her name came up in my research, and I decided to dig a little bit further And find out her impact in the field of engineering.
1: That's awesome. Wait, side note, I think the Brooklyn Bridge is both of our favorite bridges, right?
0: Yes, I think it is. Cool. Well, it's one of my favorite bridges. My dad, who is a civil engineer, his favorite bridge is actually the Mackinac Bridge, which connects the upper the north end of michigan to the little part that extends and i've never seen that bridge but he thinks it's better than the golden gate bridge so that one i would like to see one day
1: yeah we'll definitely have to check that out sometime like in person
0: yeah so to begin emily roebling was born in 1843 to a upper middle class family in cold spring new york and she was the youngest of 12 children In her teenage years, she traveled to D.C. to attend Georgetown Academy of the Visitation, where she studied history, astronomy, French, and algebra, along with, you know, housekeeping and needlework. And after college, or during her late teenage years, she went on a trip to visit her brother at his army camp in 1864 and on that trip she met a young officer named Washington Roebling and they kinda hit it off from the start and after 12 months of correspondence they ended up getting married so after the the war the couple traveled to Europe and they ended up helping her husband's father do some research on caissons. So at the time, her father-in-law, John Roebling, was actually doing research for this new technology caissons to use for the Brooklyn Bridge. And basically caissons are pressurized watertight chambers to help build underwater foundations. And he was planning to do this to connect Brooklyn to Manhattan. So... As I mentioned, the Brooklyn Bridge was originally designed by John A. Roebling and he started designing the project in 1869. Just a few days into the project while surveying the site, John A. Roebling crushed his foot in the pillings of a Brooklyn pier when a barge came to dock and he died a month later of tetanus. So once John A. Roebling died, his son Washington Roebling, or uh, Emily Roebling's husband, became the head engineer on the project. And once Washington took over, Emily also had an interest and became involved in the Brooklyn Bridge project. Three years later, in 1872, Washington Roebling developed a crippling illness called Quezon's disease, also known as decompression sickness, or the bends, and he got this while working down in the caissons for the construction of the bridge piers deep beneath the water surface
1: i think a lot of people know this disease as the bends or like a disease that a lot of divers will be wary of because when they're coming up from a deep dive they have to wait a certain amount of time so that i think it's this has to do with like the nitrogen levels or the pressure and then they could die if they come up too fast and when they come up too fast they get the bends or decompression disease yeah
0: that's a great way to explain it and since this technology was so new they probably were you know coming up above the water level and like down below the water level really quickly without realizing the impact on their body so washington roebling developed this disease and he was pretty much left bedridden and partially paralyzed. And he had an apartment kind of down the street from where the construction was taking place. So he would watch the construction through a telescope. But at this time, to help her husband, Emily actually started copying down notes and studying topics in civil engineering. So the math, the strength of materials, stress analysis, and cable construction. And while her husband was paralyzed, she went down to the site every day to convey her husband's instructions and also to answer any questions that construction workers might have. Also at this time, she kept records, answered mail, and represented her husband at social functions. Some even suspect that she was actually the intelligence behind the bridge because she took over for quite a few years and ended up pretty much running the project. So during construction, The mayor of Brooklyn was actually looking to replace the Roeblings with a family friend, but with Emily's persistence, they ended up finishing the project 14 years later. And on opening day, Emily Roebling and President Arthur rode across the bridge together. And this bridge was a feat of civil engineering. It was the first suspension bridge in the world to use steel cable for its wire. It was also the first bridge to use explosives in a dangerous underwater device called caissons. And when it was built, the Brooklyn Bridge spanned 3,460 feet and was crowned the longest suspension bridge in the world. Wow, impressive. Yeah, that is pretty impressive. And as said by the New York City congressman in 1883, The name of Emily Warren Roebling will be inseparably associated with all that is admirable in human nature and all that is wonderful in the constructive world of art. And the Brooklyn Bridge stands as an everlasting monument to the self-sacrificing devotion of a woman. So she was pretty much the first female field engineer on record, basically, or one that was kind of well-known at the time. After the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge, she and her husband moved to New Jersey and they managed the construction of their mansion. She also took on important roles in the Daughter of the American Revolution and other civic organizations. And during this time, she traveled to the coronation of Nicholas II in Russia and was presented to the Queen Victoria in London. And she served as a nurse and construction foreman um, on a Long Island camp which was established to house soldiers returning from the Spanish-American War. And along with all of that, in 1899, she took and passed the women's law course at New York University, which is a semester-long course that offered a certificate for women in business and law. And she ended up becoming a marriage and inheritance lawyer, fighting for marriage inequalities and widows' property rights. So she was a lawyer for about four years until her health began to deteriorate in 1901. And then she ended up dying in 1903 at the Roeblings' home. Oh, wow. And in 2018, they honored her by changing the name of uh, one block of Columbia Heights between Pineapple and Orange Street in New York City uh, to Emily Warren Roebling Way, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that is pretty cool. She did a lot. She did basically everything. She was a field engineer. She did nursing.
0: She was a lawyer. Wow. I don't think a lot of people could do that. No, and she basically taught herself all of civil engineering. Like She taught herself how to design a bridge and how to work with construction foremen and how to manage them. And I just think it's really impressive for her to do that pretty much on her own. No, yeah, that is really impressive. Okay, so
1: the next person that we're going to talk about is Ada Lovelace. So, Ada Lovelace is actually considered one of the first computer programmers because she introduced a lot of computer concepts, and I just think she's really interesting. Um, a lot of her work actually didn't become well known or studied until the 1950s, even though she wrote all of this in the 1830s to the 1850s. So Ada Lovelace was born on December 10th, 1815, as the only legitimate child to the poet Lord Byron, but only weeks after she was born, her mother separated from her father. Her mother actually hired tutors to teach her, and since her mother had mathematical training, she insisted that Ada also study mathematics and science too, to help her avoid developing so-called, like, her father's moodiness, and temperament, quote-unquote, and at an early age, she showed a gift for numbers and language, and when she was 17, she met the mathematician and inventor Charles Babbage, who served as a mentor to her. Because she met this mathematician Babbage, she began studying advanced mathematics with University of London professor Augustus de Morgan. In all, she was really fascinated with the ideas that Babbage had. He actually is known as the father of the computer and invented the difference engine, which is meant to perform mathematical calculations. Ada actually got a chance to look at the machine before it was finished, and she was like captivated by it. And then Babbage actually created plans for another device known as the analytical engine, which was designed to handle more complex calculations. Later on, after she got a chance to look at these plans, she was asked to translate an article, and this is what she is most well-known for. She was asked to translate an article on Babbage's analytical engine that had been written by an Italian engineer, Luigi Federico Menabrea. We're just going to say that I said that correctly, for a Swiss journal because she was known to be good with languages as well. So when she did this, she translated the original French text into English, but then also added her own thoughts and ideas on the machine. And it ended up being three times longer than the original article. And she actually used a only her initials, AAL, in the publication. And this was published in 1843. So in this article, she actually speculated that the engine might act on other things besides a number so that the engine might compose an elaborate and scientific piece of music or any degree of complexity or extent. These are words straight from her article. So she basically said that this machine, or she basically made the idea that a machine could manipulate symbols in accordance with rules, and this number could represent entities other than quantity. And this marked a fundamental transition from calculation to computation. So. When you're using computer programming today, these are concepts that are pretty familiar to us. But during that time, computers didn't exist. And the idea that a machine could do this was actually quite phenomenal. And after this, she has been referred to as the prophet of the computer age. And she was definitely the first to express a potential for computers outside mathematics. So as in not just adding or subtracting or you know, multiplying, that sort of thing. In her notes, she also described how codes could be created for the device to handle letters and symbols along with numbers and theorized the method for the engine to repeat a series of instructions, which is what we know now as looping in computer programming. We even learned about looping, I think freshman year of college, and it's, it's a well-used concept today and although her work didn't really attract that much attention while she was alive, her theories are now very well known and they weren't discovered until the 1950s and they were reintroduced to the world by B.V. Bowen um, who republished them in Faster Than Thought, a symposium on digital computing machines in 1953. And she has since received a lot of honors for her work after death. Recently, I guess not that recently, this would be 40 years ago, but in 1980, the U.S. Department of Defense actually named a newly developed computer language Ada after, after Ada Lovelace. However... In her later years, she also tried to devise mathematical schemes for winning at gambling, and she was actually very unsuccessful. She failed, and then she struggled financially for the rest of her life, and her health also suffered after she got cholera in 1837, then had a lot of lingering problems with asthma and painkillers, and then actually experienced mood swings and hallucinations and then she unfortunately died of uterine cancer on november twenty seventh, 1852 and that is the story of the first computer programmer not just the first woman computer programmer the first computer programmer in the universe
0: wow that's really impressive what she did and also kind of sad how She ended up living out the last few years of her life, although she made this very important discovery and created a program, a computer program for the first time.
1: Yeah, I think the thing is a lot of people in that time probably thought of that as like fantastical, something that could not even be comprehended or done Um, and she just had these ideas too early on honestly yeah that's what it seems like well i guess the moral of the story is everyone's got to listen to women and strong women raise other strong women
0: very true okay so let's move on to the third female in stem we're going to be talking about and this is rachel carson So Rachel Carson was born in 1907 on a farm in Springdale, Pennsylvania and Rachel was the youngest of three children and from a young age she developed a love for nature from her mother and ended up being a publisher for a children's magazine by age 10. She attended Pennsylvania College for Women, now Chatham University where she originally was recruited for her writing ability, but she ended up changing her major to biology. After she graduated college in 1929, she had a fellowship at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Massachusetts, where she first experienced the ocean environment. And this fellowship deepened her passion for biology, and she ended up getting her master's in marine zoology from John Hopkins University while she served as a teaching assistant and part-time instructor. So after she graduated with her master's degree, her father suddenly passed away in 1935 and then her sister died in 1937. So during these few years, Carson was very strained financially as she started taking care of her mother and also her sister's two daughters. And she became the second woman hired by the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries, which is now known as the Fish and Wildlife Service, along with uh, writing feature pieces for the Baltimore Sun. So from 1936 to 1952, Carson was a full-time employee at the Fish and Wildlife Service, moving from different positions that drew on her abilities as a writer and editor. So she wrote pamphlets on conservation and natural resources, edited scientific articles and other material for the public. She ended up being promoted to editor in chief of all publications for the US Fish and Wildlife Service. Meanwhile, in her free time, she was writing a book and she published her first book, Under the Sea Wind and she went on to write The Sea Around Us in 1952. And her book won a National Book Award, a National Science Writing Prize, and a Guggenheim grant. And from 1952, due to her success from her book, she was able to retire from government and devoted herself to her writing. So, Carson was very disturbed by the use of synthetic chemical pesticides after World War II, and she reluctantly changed her focus in order to warn the public about the long term effects of misusing pesticides. A letter from her friend in Massachusetts about the loss of a bird after a pesticide spring inspired Carson to write Silent Spring. In her book, Silent Spring, she challenged the practices of agricultural scientists and the government and called for a change in the way humankind view the natural world. It was during her writing of Silent Spring when Carson found out she had breast cancer. With all of her personal tragedies, it was really impressive that Carson was able to write such an impactful novel. Silent Spring mainly discussed the use of the popular pesticide DDT. and DDT stands for and DDT had been used successfully in World War II to kill mosquitoes and fleas and other insects that spread deadly diseases like malaria and typhoid. After the war, the U.S. Department of Agriculture decided to use DDT to increase domestic productivity of crops, and to fight illnesses. DDT's widespread use, ranging from large-scale aerial sprays to insecticidal paint and wallpaper, caused the U.S. production of DDT to leap from 4,366 tons in 1944 to a peak of 81,154 tons in 1963. Biologists began to compile evidence of the rise of DDT-resistant strains of insects, pests, and other harmful side effects. Carson accuses the chemical industry of spreading misinformation and public officials of accepting industry claims uncritically. She did extensive research, citing dozens of scientific reports, conducting interviews with leading experts, and reviewing materials across disciplines. And her book really conveyed that the spraying of chemicals to control insect populations can also feed birds and other animals that feed on the dead or decaying insects. Additionally, the chemicals travel not only throughout the environment, but up into the food chains, which could end up affecting human health. And lastly, that the chemicals that don't outright kill immediately can accumulate in fat tissues, causing medical problems later on and they can be transferred genetically from mothers to their young. All of these ideas were new to the public consensus, and it really solidified the thought that life is much more interconnected and interdependent than people assumed or understood at that time. Carson called not for the outright ban of agricultural chemicals, but just for caution, further study and the development of biological alternatives. So when Silent Spring was released in the fall of 1962, it was met with enormous public interest and also some criticism. Her research and ideas became testimonial at two congressional hearings and a presidential science advisory committee report on pesticides in 1963, confirmed Carson's call for limits on pesticide use and further research into their health hazards. Her book Silent Spring is frequently cited as the catalyst that inspired the environmental movement that began in the 1960s, which gained national and international momentum in the 1970s. And this movement caused the establishment of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the passing of numerous laws protecting the environment and human health, including the ban of domestic use of DDT in 1972, along with the Clean Water and Clean Air Act. Unfortunately, two years after Silent Spring was published, at the age of 56, Carson passed away. Carson inspired a new paradigm of thinking where humanity is not the center of life on Earth, but part of nature. The legacy of Silent Spring continues today in the scientific community's increased focus on environmental sustainability, friendly practices, and the public's heightened support for sustainability in all areas of our lives.
1: That's great. We love sustainability. I think she inspired the i've heard of a lot of trails in this area i think there's one called the rachel carson trail and i think they're in maryland and i think there's also one in pittsburgh as well the rachel carson trail challenge i've seen other people do that before though
0: also fun fact so there's three sister bridges in the city of pittsburgh And they're named after famous people from the Pittsburgh area. And they're all designed very similarly. And um, one of them is named the Carson Bridge. Awesome. She's not only important to people in Pittsburgh, but she's also
1: important to people in Maryland, which which are two of my favorite places. So this -hmm. is great. (laughs) The last person that we'll be talking about is Rosalind Franklin. Many of you may know her as... The scientists who initially did not receive credit for her research that was crucial to determining the structure of DNA, she is commonly associated with Watson and Crick, who did receive the Nobel Prize for the discovery of DNA. So Rosalind Franklin was born on July 25th, 1920 in London to Ellis and Muriel Franklin. She was the second of five children. At a young age, she attended St. Paul's Schools for Girls, which at the time was known for preparing its graduates for careers as opposed to marriage, gasp. There, she demonstrated an aptitude for math, science, and languages, and she eventually spoke French, Italian, and German. She also discovered a passion for hiking and foreign travel at that time because her family often did walking or hiking tours for vacation, which is a really interesting fact, And by the time she was 16, she knew that she wanted to pursue science. In 1938, she enrolled in Newnham College, which is one of the two women's colleges at Cambridge University. And there she received her BA or her Bachelor of Arts in Physical Chemistry in 1941, After she received her BA, she was awarded a scholarship for a further year of research and also a research grant from the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. She spent that year in the lab of RGW Norrish, who is a noted pioneer in photochemistry, which will be important for her work later on. Then a year later in 1942, With World War II still on, she had to decide whether to be drafted for more traditional war work or pursue a PhD-oriented research job in a field relevant to wartime needs, and she chose to do that and began work with the British Coal Utilization Research Association. And for the following four years, she worked to figure out the microstructures of various coals and carbons and explain why some were more permeable to water, gases, or solvents, and how heating and carbonization affected permeability because this work was really important for World War II. And she actually found that the pores in coal have finer constrictions at the molecular level which increase with heating and vary according to the carbon content of coal, which act as molecular sieves, quote-unquote, which can successfully block penetration of substances according to molecular size. And she was actually the first to identify and measure these microstructures. And then this work helped her get her doctorate. So this yielded a doctoral thesis and received her PhD from Cambridge University in 1945. So after she finished her doctorate and after World War II ended, she wanted to work in a different field or she wanted, basically she just wanted a different job. So she ended up getting a position in Jacques Mering's lab in Paris She learned how to analyze carbons using x-ray crystallography uh, which is also known as x-ray diffraction analysis and became very proficient with the technique she ended up doing a lot of coal chemistry but because this research position was in france and she wanted to move back to england she began looking for a position in england in 1949 And so one of her friends, Charles Coulson, who is a theoretical chemist, suggested that she look into doing x-ray diffraction studies of large biological molecules instead. And so she ended up working at John T. Randall's biophysics unit at King's College, London in 1950. So this is where she started the work that would be important for The later discovery of DNA. So originally, the PI had planned for her to build up a crystallography section and work on analyzing proteins, but instead, at the suggestion of the assistant lab chief, he asked Rosalind Franklin to investigate DNA instead. In early 1951, she took increasingly clear x-ray diffraction photos of DNA and discovered that there are two forms, wet and dry, which produce very different pictures. The wet form she realized was probably helical in structure with the phosphates on the outside of the ribose chains. And her mathematical analysis of the dry form diffractions, however, did not indicate a helical structure. And she spent over a year trying to resolve the differences, but by early 1953, she had concluded that both forms had two helices. So, this is where Watson and Crick, or James Watson and Francis Crick, come into play. So, They were working not at the same laboratory as Rosalind Franklin, but they were working at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, and they were working on a theoretical model of DNA. But although they weren't in close communication with Rosalind in January of 1953, they saw one of her x-ray diffraction photos that was shown to them by Wilkins, who was the assistant lab chief at the lab that she was working at, who did not really have a great relationship with Rosalind Franklin, and saw the summary of her unpublished research submitted to the Medical Research Council, and so they were able to glean crucial insights about DNA structures from these photos and from the research that had been unpublished and they actually didn't ever tell her that they had seen her materials, and they did not directly acknowledge that their debt to her work. When they published their announcement in Nature that April, Frances Crick actually later admitted that Franklin, or Rosalind Franklin, was two steps away from realizing the correct structure of DNA in the spring of 1953, so she would have been pretty close, and she probably would have gotten to the answer before them had they not seen her photos and seen her unpublished research ahead of time. By the time that Watson and Crick published their work, she already arranged to transfer her fellowship to a different lab, J.D. Bernal's crystallography lab at Burbeck College, where she turned her attention to the structure of plant viruses, most notably the tobacco mosaic virus or TMV. And she made meticulous x-ray diffraction photos of these viruses. And her work actually revealed that the RNA or the ribonucleic acid was actually embedded in the inner wall of its protective protein shell. And and her work and expertise in virus structures was actually recognized by the Royal Institution in 1956 when its director honored her with the request to construct large scale models of the rod-shaped and spherical viruses for the 1958 Brussels World's Fair Science Exhibition. Um, and then unfortunately, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 1956, and although she sought treatment and continued working, she died in London on April 16, 1958. And so I think she's really important because her role in the discovery of DNA is what is most known about her. So actually, Watson, Crick, and Wilkins, who was the assistant lab chief in the lab that she was working at when she made these photos or when she was analyzing these x-ray diffraction photos of DNA, they actually shared the 1962 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for their work on the structure of DNA. And at the time, no one gave Rosalind credit for her contributions at that time, even though had she not taken the photos and had they not seen the photos, they would not have realized or come to that conclusion so quickly. And it actually would have remained a quiet footnote had Watson not caricatured her in his 1968 memoir, which is called The Double Helix. He actually presented her as Rosie, who was a bad-tempered, arrogant blue stocking who jealously guarded her data from colleagues, even though she was not competent to interpret it. And so although the book was really popular when it was published... Many protested Watson's treatment of Franklin, and many reviewers actually protested the treatment of Franklin, including Crick and Wilkins. In 1975, Franklin's friend Anne Sayre actually published a biography um, to rebut Watson's memoir, and this is how Franklin's role in the discovery of DNA became better known. It's really important to give credit where credit is due and i think it's really unfortunate that she had to get this credit posthumously
0: yeah and i didn't actually end up knowing anything about rosalind franklin until i read my recent book invisible women and now it's it's just really surprising to me that all of her work kind of went uncredited until now but i do have a question for you if you can clarify what exactly is the x-ray diffraction technology she was using to create the image of the the dna so let me answer this question so x-ray
1: crystallography is actually a technique and they use it to determine the atomic and molecular structure of a crystal so basically they beam an x-ray into this crystal and The structure of the crystal causes a beam of incident X-rays to diffract into many directions, which is how they get a certain pattern. So from this pattern, they can create a electron density map, which is where like the electrons, they map out like where the electrons are most dense. And then from that, they can fit it to a model so they can make an atomic model of of the DNA, for example.
0: Okay, so they're shining they're shining the x-ray through the crystal so it diffracts in a bunch of different directions, but where exactly, like how do you see the DNA from that is my question? Okay, yeah. So they shine the
1: x-ray through the molecule that you want, right? So they crystallize the DNA and they shine the x-ray through that. And then from that, Crystal, because of the structure within the crystal, or because of the structure within the molecule, the rays will the rays coming out of the crystal will go into different directions and it'll be captured on film. And then from that, you can get this thing called a diffraction pattern, which tells you, I guess, the general structure of the crystal. From from these x-ray patterns, I'm not actually really sure how they exactly match it up to the model. But I know that they like use an electron density map and then they make an atomic model, but then they'll go back to the diffraction pattern to like make sure that it's correct. And it's just they keep doing that until they find a structure. Okay. wow. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's a very complicated subject and it's not something that I've done before. It's only something that I've learned about before. I know that you need to use the Fourier transform to figure out the 2d images to convert, to convert the 2d images into a 3d model to, I guess, make your electron density map. But I'm not really sure how they exactly do that, but it sounds very complicated, and I'm sure Rosalind knew what she was doing, even though they presented her as a not very competent scientist.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a very intense process, and she was on the leading edge of research and was basically only a few steps away from discovering the shape of DNA, so that's impressive. How did they get her unpublished information? Was it just, like, public in their connection of laboratories?
1: I don't think so. Because they were friends with Wilkins, who was the assistant lab chief of the lab that Franklin was working in. So, of course, he would see her unpub- unpublished research. And he would have access to the photos that she had taken.
0: Okay. Okay wow yeah very interesting story yeah
1: it is okay so if you guys want to know more or have more questions about these specific women we will put the sources that we used in the show notes in the description of the show
0: thank you all so much for listening we hope you enjoyed and we're thinking of maybe turning this into a series on our podcast So we'll see you guys again in two weeks. Thank you. Bye. Bye.